Hello and welcome to Vet Chloe on the Road. Insights from real people making positive change for our planet. I am Chloe, a veterinarian who has an interest in wildlife and all things environmental. And this is a show for people who would like to connect, learn, and prioritize caring for our beautiful green and blue world. Come join me as I travel around Australia in my van, Layla. Let's share all things conservation and meet all the inspiring environmental heroes along the way. And on today's episode, I interview Dr. Alison Peel, a veterinarian and wildlife disease ecologist whose talk I attended at the Australian Veterinary Association annual conference this year held in Perth. Her talk was entitled Interactions Between Land Use Change, Flying Fox Ecology and Hendra Virus Dynamics. In our chat, we learn about the work life of Alison and bring this topic to life, all about a holistic approach to how things are connected, whether human influence, wildflower food shortages and disease spillover into horses. A fascinating and important discussion. Listen in. Hi, Alison. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So I just went to your great talk on the interactions between land use change, flying fox ecology and Hendra virus dynamics. It was fabulous. Thank you very much. (laughs) I thought to start, though, if you could tell us a little about your personal and professional background. Sure, yeah. Uh, I grew up in Sydney. I've always had an interest in animals and in wildlife in particular uh, and found that um, through university, through my veterinary training in, in Sydney, that I yeah, had retained that interest in, in wildlife. Initially, I was interested in the individuals, but over time, I, I really realised that I had a, an interest in, in terms of wildlife populations and, and their dynamics, so how the populations themselves um, you know, change over time and then also the the impact of human activities on the populations and in uh, their their health and diseases themselves. Mm. And so did vet medicine at Sydney? Yes. And did you work clinically initially? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I I studied at uh, Sydney University. I did a a one-year stint in South Australia in mixed animal practice, so, you know, a baptism of fire with pretty much any any species that you can imagine. Um, After that, I decided to move over to the UK and worked in small animal practice over there for 18 months or so. Right. Um, but it was at that point that I decided to, to go back in the, in the wildlife direction and mm. uh, did a master's in wild animal health at London Zoo and ah. Royal Veterinary College. And then um, following that, I did my uh, PhD at the University of Cambridge um, looking right. at um, uh, viral infection dynamics and uh, epidemiology in African bats. Wow. Mm. So maybe after two or three years of clinical small animal practice decided I'll go into conservation do some studies yes yeah Yeah. I think so I think I could see that even within um uh you know wildlife health I I had the option of going um down a zoo path a zoo veterinary Mm -hmm. path um or into research and again I I could see that um while I enjoyed clinical practice and would um even more so in, in a zoo setting I think in terms of the interest at the end of the day, I was really interested in the populations and, mm. and, and that is um, the, the research avenue sort of took my fancy a little bit more. Yes. So, yeah. And so after your PhD, is that when you returned here to Australia? Yeah, that's You said correct. it's been recent or? Uh, it was, it's about five years ago now. So yeah. Six years ago, actually. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. It's sort of uh, <laughs> combined on. with, um, yeah, mixing um, family and, and, and work life. So I've had two children and taken off some time. And so it's yeah. nice to be back in Australia. Oh, um, wonderful. Working on some very similar systems as I was doing in Africa but where we have a lot more baseline data than, than we did for the population okay. in Africa. So what is your job now? 
So I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Griffith University um, in Brisbane. Uh, I work full time on research. I um, just do a little bit of teaching on the side, and and our project is looking at um, flying fox uh, ecology and health, um, and also um, some of the viruses that they carry and they, um, mm. the dynamics of yeah. those viruses. Hence the talk. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and what do you enjoy about your job? Would you say broadly? Um, I think it's so varied. Um, I get to work with a lot of different people both in terms of uh, collaborators um, on our grant so we work um, with uh, researchers from uh, over 16 different institutions across five continent continents mm. um, in addition to um, PhD students and honours students and other colleagues here in um, in Brisbane yeah and so yeah just the varied interactions we um, although we're working on um, mostly on on the one system that I mentioned we have many different layers of research in that sort of from the environmental science perspective, flying fox ecology, health, um, you know, stress levels, movement, um, you know, disease <laughs> dynamics, all sorts of things wow. that um, all layer on top of each other and make it really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it sounds really stimulating and dynamic and, you know, you're always filling in the story more and more. Yeah, yeah. and it's a system that's um, uh, actively changing very rapidly over recent years and so yeah. there's a sense of urgency there and, and yes. really exciting. Exciting, exciting time to be involved in terms of change and, and, and to try and make a difference. Yes. And on the flip side, any challenges in particular in your area, I guess, <laughs> people <laughs> listening to you? Yeah, there's plenty of challenges. I mean, the system is very complex. So yeah. um, academically and from a practical perspective, it's, it's very hard to tease um, apart all the different influencing factors. And, and so um, that's, a, I guess, a, a challenge from the research perspective. Um, we're working with um, flying foxes and they carry viruses that can kill people. So we have to be very careful from a health and safety perspective and in terms of uh, supervising our field team and making sure that they're following all the practices mm -hmm. that, that keeps them safe. Um, we have to work with members of the, the public and um, people out there have very different views on flying fox foxes and um, obviously they have a really valuable um, contribution to the environment in terms of maintaining our healthy forests mm. but obviously some people um, are, are worried about the diseases they carry or are, um, uh, you know, uh, impacted by you know the noise or the smell of flying fox roosts if they yeah. live nearby. So it's certainly challenging in terms of science communication to yeah. to make sure a balanced um, message um, is is portrayed. So, yes, no, yeah. definitely challenges there. <laughs> yes. And to achieve it, what does your sort of day to day look like? It must be very variable. I mean, this is part of your job, coming and doing presentations, I guess, um, flying in, um, yes. you're flying out this evening, aren't you? <laughs> yes. um, so you know, what's your day to day or what are the different things you do? So um, an ideal day-to-day -day for me would be, uh, you know, probably largely sitting down at the desk in front of a computer these days, but um, analysing data and, and reading papers and, and writing papers about our research. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we um, haven't had a huge amount of time for that over the last couple of years. We've been setting up a very big uh, field study. And so actually over the last couple of years, a lot of, you know, the majority of my time has been um, project management, um, permits, um, you know, risk assessments and oh. all the administration that happens in terms Learning of Learning about all projects. of that so, stuff. Exactly. So we're we're very optimistic that this um, research project will be a, a long term study, and so all the effort involved mm. in getting set up should be worth it for a long a long um, period of time. And 
Um, but yeah, it's been a, an effort to get it going. Yeah. And then uh, I guess the other part of it is supervising um, PhD students. So they have all um, each have their own little projects that nestle into the whole thing. Yes. Um, and they and do the guidance. field research, or yeah. do you go and visit at times? I, I go and visit at Check times, out. which is always <laughs> it's always nice to get out Stay there out. in the field. And um, but yeah, that's largely um, and travel involved. Yeah, most of our um, our field sites are uh, within a couple of hours of Brisbane, and so mm, um, nice. for the longer field trips, they will, will stay out close to the wrist. And yeah, but we we now have um, several PhD students, and um, with recent funding, we've been able to employ three staff on the project as well. And so that's really yeah. helped us implement the field program. Oh, good, have a team. Yeah. And so before we deep dive into the project specifically, can you tell listeners a little bit about the flying fox? Okay, so uh, yeah, there are um, four species of flying fox in Australia, and in the region that we're working in, which is southeast Queensland and uh, northeast New South Wales, we um, see three of those um, in that in that area. Uh, so it's the the black flying fox, the grey-headed flying fox, and the little red flying fox. Um, they're nomadic nectivores, so which means mm. they they feed on nectar and pollen um, from our native forests. And um, those pollen sources, uh, nectar sources, are uh, very temporary. So um, once they um, the the tree species has finished flowering, those that nectar source dries up, and the the flying foxes have to move on and and find new sources of nectar. So through that, they um, they spread pollen and and help to um, connect fragmented pockets of uh, forest. And so they're really important in maintaining our um, forest ecosystems. Mm. Uh, so we know um, in terms of the the viruses that they carry that um, the main one that we are studying is, is Hendra virus and the main um, reservoir host for that in the region that we're studying is the black flying fox. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we're particularly interested in that species. And does a reservoir host mean that it doesn't affect the flying fox or does it affect them? Um, I have that as a question. So a reservoir, uh, yeah, so a reservoir host um, just means the, the species or the the various species that um, a virus or a bacteria um, exists in naturally and and, Mm. um, is maintained in naturally. So it can be that that virus um, can affect the host and and cause clinical disease, or in the case of Hendra virus in flying foxes, it can be that they're just not um, Mm. noticeably affected by it. Okay, so um, that's good news for the flying foxes. For the flying foxes. And it's it's not unusual. Um, uh, Now with sort of advanced genetic um, methods, we know that humans are walking bags of viruses all the time. (laughs) We've got lots of viruses every day that don't affect us. Yeah. Um, um, and, and other animals are no different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, really interesting. And so good to make clear that um, these guys do not echolocate, um, but they are a type of bat or they're not? Yes, yeah. So there's uh, broadly two different types of bats. Um, so we, we can class them in the microbats and the, um, the macrobats. Macrobats, right. Um, and so, yeah, small bats, the, the microbats are... Um, uh, generally insect eating and they echolocate and um, to find you know find that insect prey the uh, sort of megabats as I should say um, mm. uh, uh, sort of flying foxes and other fruit bats that are either yeah fruit eating or nectar and pollen eating, okay. eating and they um, they can still hear quite well they don't tend to have as big ears as the little uh, microbats um, their vision is okay and so then they find their food through um, a combination of um, yeah, vision and smell mm, right yeah. and Australia has both micro bats and the um, megabats yes yes so here we're talking about the megabats with the flying foxes so you know i can see how they're so important with the fact that they eat nectar and pollen and move around Um, i saw a bunch of them when i was in the byron area and 
you know, learnt more about them being known as keystone species, which I quite liked this idea that they are, you know, key to the flourishment of lots of species. Would you say that's correct? Yes. Yeah. I mean, there there um, there are a number of species of uh, like of their forage, their diet species, which I think that they're the only pollinators for. This is not my area of expertise, <laughs> but yeah, I think they can. Con- um, considered to be very crucial in um, maintaining yeah. forest habitats and yep. and also um, you know when we're talking about common species that exist in large numbers um, in some cases people might not be con- so concerned about their conservation because you think oh there's still plenty of them but mm. the the point is that because they are common they play a very large role in the maintenance of the ecosystem and mm. and, and because there are so many individuals and they're um, contributing to that role, mm. and so yeah, so even so, there's a reason reduction. why they're common. Exactly, <laughs> Let's keep yeah, them common. exactly, and they yeah, play, yeah, very important. Yeah, role. this is a little sidetrack, but um, from my understanding, there's a difference statewide around Australia as regards the protection of the flying fox. I think are they better protected in in New South Wales or Queensland? I think there's a difference there. Yeah, um, don't I'm, worry if you don't know. Yeah, but I'm not sure to be honest. I know. I that, know that um, one they're a bit more tre- tre- treasured, and another they're a bit more pest-like. Yeah, I think, I mean, it depends. Yeah, I don't know exactly how the protections work. I know that um, spectacle flying foxes have mm. um, recently been uplisted to endangered, but in fact they, um, and now because of some recent mortality events, they um, qualify as critically endangered. Yeah. There's been a lot of declines of uh, grey-headed flying foxes over over long periods of time, um, but perhaps yeah. they're a little bit more stable now. But yeah. yeah I it's don't, interesting how you cross yeah, the border and it may change. Exactly, yeah, I don't know. Borders don't exist for them. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know too many details about that. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I guess this is starting to get into your project and the talk that you just gave. Um, you know, but what are the threats that they are facing, the flying foxes? So as I mentioned, flying foxes are nomadic nectivores and so they rely on, you know, various eucalypt and other species um, year-round to, to feed on. Now, in wintertime, there are um, very few of their diet species that flower at that time of the year. So it's a natural lean period for them. And the number of species is very low. And also the um, the uh, the absolute quantity of those, like the, the area of the distribution that those species exist mm. is very limited. And so wintertime is naturally a, um, a, a period of time where there's little food available, uh, available for them. And um, in the past, uh, certainly around winter time, there's been a, a lot of congregation of flying foxes in southeast Queensland, where um, there um, mm. typically is some some areas where they do get good winter flowering. What we're seeing now is that um, the areas where those uh, winter diet species exist are in areas that are very good for agriculture, and um, in some areas, up to 96% of the winter flowering um, species have been cleared. And so, because you were saying that the winter flowering plants need rich soil, and exactly. the farmers want the rich soil. Yeah? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so there's a conflict of interest there, and and the flying foxes are, are, are losing out, and this is. Um, Particularly intense in in certain regions and um, of uh, north northeast New South Wales and southeast Queensland and so what was already um, a, a lean period in the past is now increasingly mm. so and so we think we're seeing a situation where there's a chronic winter food shortage for flying foxes yep. in that region and the distribution of flying foxes it's generally just up the east coast of Australia what's their high and low point it varies uh, by species so the grey-headed flying fox um, 
in in the past um i think used to extend down you know sydney way or mm-hmm. sort of mid new south wales um but over the last because um, they're not in the tropics couple of decades yeah and they're not in tasmania in, well they have, they? yeah so in oh, in are. the past they uh, so over, over recent times they have been extending further south there's now a number of um flying fox roosts in victoria that never used to exist there's one in adelaide that never used to exist it, during periods of food shortage, there have been vagrant, oh. you know, flying foxes turning up in Tasmania. And so, yeah, that, that distribution is changing over time. Moving further north, the um, the distribution of the grey-headed flying foxes starts to overlap with, with black flying foxes. And again, the, the southern extent of the black flying fox range has been shifting further south over a mm. similar time frame. Um, over, but, what would you say, a couple of decades? Or uh, it's fairly recent, right? F- fairly recent. I would, yeah. I, I, again, I don't have my fingers um, on the pole, right. but sort of the, probably the last... 10 or 15 years yeah. or so, I think, yeah. Okay, um, but not in Western Australia. They don't come out so here? So, um, moving further north, then um, in, in, say, about central Queensland, I think the, um, the grey-headed flying fox, is that's their, their most northern extent, but the black flying fox continues to, to move up the uh, Queensland coast and then across the northern top of Australia and, and down, um, you know, a little bit into... Um, down the Western Australia and Western coast. So, um, but very little is known about the black flying foxes um, across that range. Most of the research has been, you know, in the area that we're working in. So, Okay. Um, and how far up and around West do you think they get? Like, are they in, um, you know, Exmouth, like up by the coral reef there? I mean, it's... I don't know the geography yeah. there too well. Yeah, but, but I mean, there's, I can tell you a map, but... There's, I, a, yeah. there's a big bite where they aren't. Yeah, yeah interesting. Yeah. And I think... Uh, and, uh, and then the little red flying fox um, is has a, a bit of a different um, yeah. uh, ecology, and they extend a bit further inland than the okay. other species, but also sort yeah. of up across the north and, and central Australia. Yeah. I mean, I knew that when I f- came to Australia and Sydney at the start, I was just fascinated by them because here is a city, and these big flocks of flying foxes were in the air, you know, um, twittering. I don't know how you describe their <laughs> way they call, calling, yeah. um, calling and. Um, it just felt really atmospheric and there's fig trees and I could hear them all kind of bickering um, in the trees and it just felt very exotic and different, almost like, you know, Gotham City Batman style yeah. um, with the sun setting. Um, so it's definitely a feature of Australia and they're adaptive to urban settings, aren't they? So a lot of people are familiar with them. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, they've always been around, you know, um, where people urban development has happened but it's increasingly the case where flying foxes are moving into urban areas and uh, we think that that's uh, due to a number of different factors Um, but largely because uh, their native forests foraging um, areas are being destroyed and so then they're seeking out other areas to to try and find food and of course within urban areas we have we have parks and gardens and botanical parks and and people's backyards um yeah is a big hot spot exactly so um and opportunities for them to to feed on on food sources that are available year round so one in um in brisbane for example um, there's been studies showing that the flying fox rely heavily particularly in winter time on on cocos palm fruits um it flowers year round but again during that lean time when there's very little else available they'll feed on on cocos palms um and uh, again it's thought to be not be particularly healthy for them sometimes they can get the cocos palms seeds stuck in their mouth so that they can't continue to feed mm. um and so yeah they're they're really surviving in urban areas on on substandard food yeah um, yeah <laughs> 
species just find a way, you know, if you push them, you know, they're going to find a way to stay hold. Yeah. So tell us more about your project. It was all about, um, you know, the flying fox. Now we're a bit more familiar with uh, horses and Hendra virus. And, you know, what was the push for this project? Was it for human understanding? Because, as you say, can lead to death in humans this disease or what was the the backing so it it came came together um so uh, our flying fox ecologist on the program on the project uh, dr peggy eby who's um, based at the university of new south wales and now also at griffith she's worked with flying foxes for almost three decades now and has been studying their ecology and noticed patterns uh, that are um, emerging that are you know in their change in the ecology over time and she had been noting that, and then it wasn't until um, 2011 when there were a large number of hendrovirus spillovers um, mm-hmm. in southeast Queensland and northeast New South Wales, and, and she was fortunate enough to join with government vets to visit some of the sites where those hendrovirus spillovers occurred into horses and noticed that the fly, there was evidence that the flying foxes were feeding on things there that she would never have thought that they would feed on. And so... For her, that was a a connection to sort of say, well, maybe some of these processes that we're seeing for the hendrovirus spillover um, are are really much more linked to the flying fox ecology than anyone Mm. had recognised before. Had we established that the hendrovirus came from the flying fox at that stage? Yes, that was was known, but it it really wasn't... um, There wasn't any real connection, meaningful connection to the ecology of the flying foxes themselves. Environmental changes and spillover. Exactly, and and how those things might have been changing current with this yep. you know emergence of this new virus yeah um, and tell us a bit more about the virus hendra <laughs> sure so it's a um it's a paramyxovirus is the the family of viruses that it's in so it's related to human viruses like measles um and it was first noticed in uh, in horses in 1994 when there was an outbreak um, of a highly fatal uh, respiratory disease in a in a stable in in the suburb of Hendra in in Brisbane. Um, unfortunately, um, during that time, not only were a lot of horses affected, but um, some humans, uh, some people as well, and including one uh, trainer who died mm. as part of that outbreak. Uh, and then subsequent to that, there's been a number of other spillovers from the from the bats into horses and subsequently into humans that have resulted in uh, four human deaths death so far. Mm. Um, the the horses um, are very severely affected from it as well. There's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, most horses who are uh, infected will will go on to die um, and experience very, um, you know, serious and and debilitating yeah. clinical signs. Um, and, and you were saying that the link is roosting bats urinating or flying and urinating it yeah directly contacting the horse or on the grass that they eat and then it creating respiratory problems and then what the human who comes for like a upper respiratory horse or they don't know they're doing a lameness exam or something yes. and aerosol and then they get it yeah yeah so that's right so um so flying foxes uh excrete virus mostly through their urine. Um, yep. The survival of the virus is very limited in the environment and so we think that there um, is very close contact between that excretion from the bat and the infection of the horse mm-hmm. um, but it's you know uh, almost impossible to, yeah. to document itself. Yeah. But yeah as I mentioned um, flying uh, horses um, experience very severe clinical signs and so become very sick very quickly, um, show either respiratory signs so a lot of um, oral or nasal discharges mm-hmm. um, or neurological signs as well Um, and then yeah so it was typically owners or or veterinarians who are attending sick horses that are Mm. highest risk of infection horse dies and then does the human die from similar symptoms uh yes it expresses itself the same it has been largely neurological signs i think yeah i remember at vet school um because there was that more recent 
recent outbreak in 2009, I think, or anyway, I was at vet school when it was back on to high alert and um, the vaccine was underway um, with the research because now we have a vaccine as of the early 2010, so 2011? Yes, yeah. And, vaccinate um, horses. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's um, a very effective vaccine in, in horses. It was yeah. um, developed um, as a high priority to, because of the, the number of human deaths at that point. And, uh, and it was released on a provisional licence to try and get it out there and help prevent, um, prevent um, mm-hmm. further deaths and, and illness yeah. in, in, human, in people, um, both the vets and the owners. And, and so unfortunately, um, because of the way that it was released, there were um, there was a bit of confusion about its um, its uh, efficacy and its safety, yes. and so there has been a bit of um, reluctance by some members of the horse community to um, uptake that Take it vaccine. On. Is it a six monthly vaccine, or um, is it initially there's there's a series of um, initial um, an initial course yeah. with um, a booster. Initially, when it was registered, it was a six-monthly booster, and now it's an annual booster. Oh, that's much more helpful. Yeah. 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 I just did a somewhat recent mixed practice locum. So we had horse visits. Uh, I left that to the large animal vets, although I would love that skill practically. Um, But I do remember them, you know, saying, you know, is hendrovirus up to date? And it was sort of, you know, uh, on the ground, it's sort of a question that vets want to know before they go to a property. Yeah. because obviously there's that scare, isn't there? Exactly. Um, yeah. Because they come down so quickly, you you might not have it on guard that it is a Hendra virus case potentially. It could be colic or something, right? Yes, yeah. So or some some veterinary practices have a policy that they'll only attend sick horses. I quite that like that policy. Like for so it's, it's hard that I mean that I think that's something that needs um, a lot of um, ongoing communication yeah. between the practice Education. and their clients because um, obviously there are there are cases when um, you know, there might be a, a sick horse that's not vaccinated and if a no veterinarian will come out to attend to it, then there's there's welfare considerations there for that horse as well. And yeah. so it's a very tric- tricky situation to be yeah. in and I think ongoing communication about the risks is, is really critical. And it's so new, all these developments. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And so we spoke about before the threat of habitat loss for the flying fox. So maybe just make that connection with the spillover. So now they're, what's yeah. going on? So we know that naturally during lean periods, the flying foxes um, that are normally nomadic and, and exist in very large populations will fragment across the landscape to try and find uh, f- food uh, sources in, in periods of scarcity. And what we're seeing now with this ongoing clearing is that that's becoming a chronic situation and many of those fragmented populations are persisting in urban areas where they wouldn't have normally done before and and staying there over winter periods when there's very little food available. Uh, We've done a case control study um, for the hendrovirus spillovers that occurred in 2011, there were a large number, and found that there's a much higher risk of uh, hendrovirus spillover in any particular horse property Mm. if that horse property... um, the the nearest flying fox roost was formed during a food shortage, so it's one of these fragmented, mm. newly fragmented populations. Has a continuous presence of black flying foxes, which we think are the main hendrovirus reservoirs, and has uh, the foraging area for that particular roost is very um, highly modified landscape, and wow. so we can see this link between um, these ecological processes and environmental processes from land clearing through to fragmentation and urban t- urbanisation of flying fox roosts through to hendrovirus spillover. Mm. And now what we're really researching is is trying to look at the the actual mechanism between that fragmentation and the, the spillover itself. And, and another reason to revegetate, um, you know, humans will only do things if pushed because it affects humans. So... 
Um, maybe the slink, you know, although it can villainize the flying fox, maybe it would also make people listen in saying they need their habitats. Exactly. So I think in terms of protecting horses and, and humans, there are, there's some excellent advice out there already that we need to stick with. So vaccinate your horse, cover their food sources and, and water sources, um, keep them away from fruiting and flowering trees. And they're very, um, very good immediate actions that we can take to try and prevent spillover. But yeah, what we're really trying to get at is getting at the drivers of the, the those um, spillover processes in the, in the first place. And if we can reverse some of those changes that have happened over the last couple of decades, then we may reduce that risk um, over all horses and, and all people, not only for Hendra virus, but any other viruses that the bats may carry that we're not fully aware of. Yeah, yet. yeah. Um, everyone benefits, really. Exactly. And so, yeah, we're hoping to, um, to to work with groups that are revegetating areas and trying to make sure that we include um, diet species for flying foxes so that we can draw flying foxes away from those, mm. those urban environments. And, and, and is there the resistance risk. to those people saying, we don't want to attract them here? Yeah, I think... Um, that's potential, but I think we'll be, looking, yeah, we'll be looking for areas where, you know, historically there was um, previously that uh, that forest existed or, mm. you know, in areas where obviously um, the, the number of horses is very low. So that yeah, we don't so that, not that shifting yeah. the problem around. Exactly, yeah. 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 Is there a similar disease elsewhere in the world? I guess, um, actually, yes, because you did mention at the end... Um, how you guys link up with Bangladesh, Ghana, and Madagascar, right? Yes, so, yeah. So there are um, there are uh, flying foxes and other related fruit bats, um, you know, across multiple continents. And there's a, a another virus called Nipah virus in in um, which is emerged in uh, Bangladesh, India, and Malaysia. Um, that. Uh, is very, very closely related to, to Hendra virus and um, also exists in Teropus fruit bats. Um, and so we know a lot less um, about the ecology of the bats themselves, but we think that there are very similar processes driving the spillover. Right. And for Nipah virus in particular, um, that can actually spill over directly from the bats to, to humans, um, mm. and then there can be human-to-human transmission. So wow. from a public health perspective, that's a, of a, a higher risk than, yeah. than Hendra virus. And then we're seeing... <clears throat> Other related uh, Hennepa viruses or related viruses in um, yeah mainland Africa and also in Madagascar. Right. So we're looking at. Um, so do you all kind of communicate and sort of share your findings? Yeah, we're all part of the same um, research group with the same funding. So yeah, yeah we're all working to the same. So how goals, who so. is that research group? How does it get so collaborated? <laughs> yeah, so um, our funding we have two U.S. funding sources and um, the lead investigator for for both of those projects is um, Associate Professor Raina Plowright, who's at Montana State University. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so she's our, our grand leader who, yeah. who keeps it all in line and, and working towards the same objectives. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. And with recent spillovers into the horses, they generally die, don't they, within a few days? Yes. And then people can recognise the symptoms saying this is Hendra and then they have quarantine. They all put on... Um, you know, masks and gloves and... Yeah, so there's initial... The the protocols have changed a little bit um, over the last couple of years um, compared to initially now that we know a lot more about Hendra virus. It's actually quite hard to catch. Um, You know, there have been a number of exposures. That's good. I've always got the impression that, like... Yeah, there's a situation where um, it's very serious if you do catch it, so it's good to take those precautions, but it is very difficult to catch. So 
Um, so yeah, there will be. The, it makes sense for the vets to to wear personal protective equipment when they come and visit the horse. They can give advice to to the owner of the horse to make sure that they uh, also limit their risk. Um, mm-hmm. For the recommendations are usually to um, if you have a sick horse that's a suspect hinder case to to separate other horses away from that horse to try yeah. and limit any ongoing transmission. But you still would gown up in plastic, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, still for, the, for the veterinarians, for the yeah, vets yeah, and then the um, the the owners too if they yeah. if they. And then, depending on what the there's a blood test check. Yeah, so uh, so they would uh, the veterinarian would uh, tend to take swabs from a number of different so nasal swabs and and and, um, uh, oral swabs as well as blood and and test by PCR. Okay. um, To see whether there's any hendrovirus. Well, that's good education for us. (laughs) Best to be updated on it all. Yeah. Yeah. Usually, there's a a sort of period after a confirmed case where they. uh, limit access to to other horses and keep um, other horses separate and monitor for any signs yeah. of clinical disease in those in contact horses. And so, what do you want to see change in favour of the flying fox from projects like this? Um, I think a key component is um, just a broader recognition of the um, recognition of the the role that they play in the environment, and um, and notice that although it may not be ideal to have um, flying foxes in your backyard, that by trying to move them along, that um, it's often just shifting that problem to somebody else, you know, um, mm. the next town along's problem. And so, yeah, again, sort of recognising that these um, these changes are really at a very large geographic scale and we need to address them at that, that scale. Yeah. Um, and, and vegetation. And in your talk, you were saying that there have been tree planting projects and that, you know, in 20 years we'll actually be able to determine. Exactly, um, yeah. I mean, I guess it's hard to move already established trees, isn't it? But is that also No, yeah, I think, yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, focusing on new plantation, like, yeah, in, okay. in areas where they previously, historically have existed yeah. is, is, is that government funded? Forward. Is government on um, board with I, this? There or? is, there is some funding that I think comes from government, but also from, from other organisations, yeah. non-government organisations, and it's all about, um, just and it's not only flying foxes. Um, there's a number of nomadic um, nectarvore species, um, you know, parrots and lorikeets mm. that that also rely on the same food resources. Yeah, help so them by, out. Uh, yeah, addressing this. Um, yeah, that's what we're hoping to achieve. And so, with the habitat loss, is the population numbers going down dramatically? Is that, or is it just getting more condensed? The um, there are some regions where we've seen declines over time in in the no- total number of flying foxes. It's, yeah. That's opposite to what many people of the public think when they because we're seeing a fragmentation of the of the roost. We, there's more roosts and people think that they're um, in plague proportions, okay. increasing in number. And in fact, it's yeah. it's the opposite. They're they're either declining or numbers or, going down. And that stable. graph you showed, I think, showed it's more like around the hundred thousand mark or in one study versus. 500,000 or something yeah, some in, years ago. So in yeah, the okay. past we used to see very large influxes when there was a good flowering event and yeah. maybe, you know, within the area, within um, southeast Queensland, yeah. in the past may see, you know, 350,000 flying foxes within that region at a particular time and, and now we just don't see those large mm. accumulations anymore. And, and is it got a certain status? Is it... Um, threatened or endangered. I guess you say there's different species of flying fox. Yeah, I, um, the grey-headed flying foxes are vulnerable, I believe. Uh, spectacle flying foxes have recently been uplisted to uh, endangered, but as I said, um, qualify for critically endangered. Yeah. Um, okay, wonderful. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm always really fascinated with projects like this, people like you, and sort of what is done with the information learnt. So, 
you were saying some governments involved, but maybe, um, you know, I'll, I'll ask you for some links or whatever, because I have a show notes that I yes. can attach, but it's nice to know there are other organizations. We don't have to rely on government. We can make our own change if we, you know, want to. Um, and they put change um, happens. Because you also showed in your talk how um, town planning and sort of having corridors um, is helpful. Um, for flying foxes. Yeah, well, that's been shown in other species that sort of, yeah, corridors between, um, yeah, fragment, fragments of forests are, are yeah. helpful. And, and So are you encouraged by change or do you find it's just too slow? Um, I think we're still in the heading in the wrong direction at the moment mm. in terms of land clearing. Some of the land clearing legislation um, over the past decade hasn't been... Um, particularly helpful and, yeah. and so yeah I still think that there's a, a long way to go but a long way to go but there is definitely a lot of interest out there um, amongst members of the public in, in in terms of trying to take this into their own hands and and, yeah. and helping these efforts so. and just by understanding it yeah, yeah so exactly. I'm just so grateful for people who like you out there and you know to wrap up how do you stay inspired <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it can be hard sometimes but I think um, largely by staying curious I think there's there's so much that we can learn about this species. It's a very complex system and um, the more questions you ask, the more you learn and, and it's just um, it's an inspiring system to be involved in. Yeah. yeah, and to know that you are part of the change and you're not sitting back, you're actually actively involved. So Yeah, we have a lot of inspiring people that we work with. So Yeah, yeah <laughs> but that keeps it up. So, you know, thank you so much, Alison, for your time and I wish you all the best in future endeavours and we may cross again. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, Alison. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed being a part of me and Alison's conversation and that you have learnt new things and understand more about the flying fox and the threats they face. Links, as always, in the show notes. Just scroll up the podcast app or go to my website, betchloe.com. And if you like the show, I would be most grateful if you could tell a friend, subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. It all helps. Or follow me on Instagram at betchloe. Next episode will be the penultimate episode for season two of Vet Chloe on the Road, where I start to wrap up our 15 episode season. It will be a week delayed as I will be in Bali next week, so apologies for that. But it will be a self-report while focused on my travels in Australia, my circumnavigation of it and what I experienced and can advise and inform you about. It will be a fun one. Message me any questions you may have via Instagram, Facebook or my email info at Till then, stay kind and I'll see you at the next stop.